Hello and welcome back. I'm Dr. Leela Lewis. I'm a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and the medical director for Adventist World Radio. It is a pleasure to be back with you again this evening. You know, it's hard to believe it's already been four weeks since we began this medical symposium. And over the course of the last four weeks, as we've begun to investigate the 1918 pandemic and comparing it to our current COVID-19 situation, we've been surprised to find out many of the principles utilized by various institutions, sometimes referred to as sanitariums that were owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Many of those principles have actually found to have some scientific bearing on our COVID-19 crisis. Well, what I'm excited to talk to you about tonight are two additional principles that we are gonna look at again, comparative with history, and then scientifically see if they apply to our COVID-19 crisis. Before we do that, again, we're so happy to have each and every one of you with us. Again, we look forward to we look forward to sharing with you, and I'm going to ask Dr. Dwayne McKee to have opening prayer for us. Thank you so much, Dr. Leela. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this opportunity to study together, to learn more about being healthy. I just pray that you'll bless our presenters, be with each one that's listening. We know many hurting people are around the world now, and I pray that you'll bless them and comfort them as only you can. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. McKee. You know, when we began this process, this looking at the past and comparing it to the current, we started out by looking at something called hydrothermal therapy. And we were really excited to find that principles such as heated air, moist heat, actually not only help to denature the virus or change it so that we could overcome it, if you will, but it actually improved our innate immune system. It helped to increase our monocyte production. Next, we looked at some other principles that were also utilized during the 19 pandemic. Again, some of those being ultraviolet radiation, in other words, sunshine, open space. We found fresh air, the simplicity of fresh air in actual trees actually making a difference. And again, in our innate immune system. And then last week, we looked at nutritional principles, simple things that we can take into our body. Interestingly enough, back in 1918, these principles were very, very novel and most unusual. But again, we found that a plant-based diet, fruits, grains, nuts, vegetables, whole grains, and exercise, again, benefiting the immune system. Now, at a time when we're facing a global situation of re-entering the regular workforce. In other words, we're talking everywhere you turn, whether it's whatever, doesn't matter what news station you're looking at, everyone's talking about how do we reopen the globe. In fact, the head of the CDC just said a few days ago, he said, you know, there is a very fair possibility that our second wave come the fall could potentially be worse than what we've been experiencing this spring. At a, there's no greater time than right now, in his own words, to improve our health. We should take this opportunity to improve and optimize our health. And that's why I'm so excited about tonight's presentation, specifically on sleep and self-restraint. Sleep is bigger than just sleeping. 
we're going to learn some different ways of rest and the direct effect that it has on the immune system. And then we're going to be talking about self-restraint. Now, many people ask, what in the world is self-restraint? Well, of course, we're going to look at things of different substances and activities that we want to completely avoid. But there are things that are considered okay and normal and actually even healthy that if we take in too much in excess could actually be detrimental. So we're looking forward to tonight's presentation. Before we get started with this full scientific approach, we want to look at the history again. As we look back to 1918 and the novel lessons learned there, I'm going to invite my good friend, Dr. Peter Lamless. Dr. Lamless is a cardiologist, and he also serves as the health director of the Global Seventh-day Adventist Church. Dr. Lamless, I am very excited to find out what took place in the 1918 pandemic in these institutions that were owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, specifically in regard to sleep and self-restraint. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, uh, Leela. It's good to be with you. And um, yes, we're going to talk about uh, what ultimately transpired in the sanitaria, but we are going to look at what led up to that and how that all took place. And we look straight away at things like self-restraint. You mentioned the term. Uh, temperance, self-control. Well, what are the definitions here? You know, are there definitions? Are we looking at anachronisms, things which are totally out of sync with the world in which we live, especially in this time of pandemic? Health experts, occupational experts, education experts, mental health experts are calling for regularity of routines in home, school, and work schedules. Did that happen in the sanitaria? Yes, it did. There was a regular routine. Uh, we are called to implement these and take intentional decisions. Well, that's what self-restraint does. We take intentional decisions. We want to try and ensure meaningful outcomes and to have that balance is needed. In the sanitarium programs that were taking place uh, in that time, yes, there was a balance. In fact, self-restraint was needed, is needed today. You talked about coming back out of lockdown situation at some point. Regularity of eating, our screen time, our social media, news time, exercise, sleep. The restorative approach of sleep, work, relaxation, alone time. All of these things are important, and those all come together in understanding of balance, self-restraint, and temperance. You know, there's a wonderful definition of temperance. One of the co-founders of our church wrote this, and uh, it, it draws on sources from the time as well, I believe. But this, to me, is something very, very helpful as we work on understanding self-restraint. Well, Ellen White wrote, True temperance teaches us to dispense entirely with everything hurtful and to use judiciously or wisely that which is helpful. And that is without question a principle or the basis foundational to many of the so-called interventions or treatments that were made available at sanitaria, whether it was exercise, sleep, nutrition. And we look at the early historic background that even led up to the term of looking at temperance and self-restraint. 
Uh, as early as 1785, Dr. Benjamin Rush wrote a pamphlet, Inquiry into the Effect of Ardent Spirits. And he was hailed as the one who really started to draw attention to the problems, problems related to non-self-restraint, particularly in the area of alcohol. And from what he wrote and the work that he did and subsequent work that was done, uh, people started to become interested in temperance societies. Story was told of a farmer who in the New England area decided that he was no longer going to pay his workers in alcohol. And um, this drew the attention of people who were interested in temperance. That He also then sent out the message that he would only take on people who were really interested in doing without alcohol. And as a result of that work, it was recorded in the American uh, temperance uh, journals that were going at the time. And the American Temperance Society was started. At that time, thousands of manufacturers of spirits closed their operations. Over 6,000 retailers discontinued sales. 5,000 drunkards reclaimed. 700 ships. Can you imagine ships navigating at sea without the use of alcohol? Amazing. All this was taking place. And of course, there were numerous temperance journals. Co-founders of the church were really busy in 1859, and they recorded the approval of James White and Jane Andrews of voting for temperance men into public office. So there was an, an attention and a focus of taking the principles that we've been talking about in the last few weeks and including the one on avoiding those substances which are dangerous. Ellen White writes one particular meeting in 1873 that the attendance was unusually good and I had freedom in treating this my favorite subject. Now, she also went a little further than that and she encouraged the church every member she encouraged people in society to sign a temperance pledge and be connected with a movement that would look towards self-restraint well that continued asking people and ourselves and others to avoid all things harmful and the history went on so not only were these practices of avoiding tobacco alcohol uh, toxic substances having good nutrition using hydrothermal therapy and uh, sunlight and open spaces and of course the exercise all these principles continued subsequently and the history tells us that an international temperance association was started early in the 20th century which then morphed into the international health and temperance association which is still active the International Commission for the Prevention of Alcoholism and Drug Dependency was founded in 1952 with a charter from the United Nations. It continues its work in, over the years, over 130 countries around the world. Showing its ongoing interest in these important topics, there was a Commission on Chemical Dependency on the Church in 1987. There were associations looking specifically at how these particular issues related to drugs, alcohol, tobacco could be avoided. And resulting in that as well was the Regenerations Ministries, which was looking at this 12-step 12, 12 program in helping people recover 
from addictive behaviors. The Youth to Youth program came around, Youth Alive, and Adventist Recovery Ministries, both in North America and now globally, is part of the ministry which looks to helping each of us maintain not only self-restraint, but recovery from addictive behaviors. Of course, prevention is really the very best treatment. It is not only better than cure, it is the cure. So we've been through anachronisms or synonyms, self-restraint and temperance. These are synonyms, newer language, older language. And in the approaches used in 1980, 18, and that we've been discussing the past few Sundays, hydrothermal therapy, air, sunlight, ultraviolet light, exercise, nutrition, and self-restraint, moderate behaviors, avoiding all things harmful, using wisely those things good, including sleep. Prompted by and in the landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic, we look at that all over again now, a summation of factors now coming together, reminders of how these and how holistic the human being is and how these factors can play roles in the process of healing, recovery, and well-being. I'm excited that as we look and discover more tonight about not only self-restraint, but the healing components, the protective components of sleep and rest, I'm sure that our audience and ourselves are going to be thrilled and educated by what we hear. Thank you so much, Dr. Lamless. That was very inspirational and very, very good information. We need history. Now, you know, as far as taking what Dr. Lamless said and making it applicable and practical to us, we have Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel. Dr. Zeno is an adjunct professor of Loma Linda University and internal medicine specialist. Dr. Zeno is going to be looking at these principles of health that we have been talking about over the last few weeks, specifically in regard to self-restraint and sleep. And he's going to be talking to us about outcome goals of these natural remedies. Where do we go from here and how do they apply? Dr. Zeno, thank you for joining us and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much. Uh... Lila, and uh, good evening to everyone. Um, this evening, we're going to be looking at uh, what we can do as we use uh, some of these uh, some of these therapies, which we call them natural therapies. Some people call them unconventional therapies. Uh, but the idea is that we'll be uh, taking a look at how they can be utilized. Okay. Uh, the first issue is that uh, for our objectives, by the time we are through with this, uh, with this conference, uh, you should be able to explain the outcome objectives for using the natural therapies and give some concrete examples of the U-shaped dose response curves that are seen in biological systems. So let's, let's go to the first uh, slide of this presentation. We have a typical thing in society and uh, among, uh, among the erudite as well as the non- uh, that if a little is good, a lot is better. And that's based upon the idea that as we increase the dose of anything that is good, 
that we will have an increasingly beneficial effect. Uh, this may sound um, you know, intuitively correct, but it is not exactly what happens in biological systems. You see, if we were to look at chemicals, uh, we see that the chemicals may have, uh, the next slide, a, a dose range. As we go from uh, a low dose to a higher dose, instead of having a linear relation, uh, can you switch to the next slide, please? Uh, instead of having a linear association, we actually have a curvilinear association or a sigmoid curve. And just to walk through this, we have we may have a dose with a low response, and that's in that lower left quadrant where we have a low dose and subtherapeutic response. And at the at the right upper quadrant, we will have a toxic effect from this chemical. It could be a medication, it could be uh, some toxin, or it could be a poison. Okay, but in between, if it's something that's therapeutic, we would expect to have a period of time or a period of of uh, of the dosing, where as the dose increases, we get increasingly beneficial uh, effects that looks almost linear, if you will. But it's based upon minimums and maximum. The minimum would be what would give you some effect, and the maximum would give you a good effect without having to have uh, some toxic effects. But that's not all. In the next slide, what we're looking at here is what happens as we look at any kind of, uh, of chemical? This is from Goodman and Gilman, and most of the doctors here understand this very well. We see uh, two curves. The first curve is a therapeutic response curve, and the second curve is the adverse effects curve. And you'd see the therapeutic window is right in the middle, where we have a, uh, a good therapeutic effect and little or no uh, adverse effects. And this, if you were to look at a population, because of the genetics of the population, this might vary from person to person, but the principle is the same. We have uh, uh, an effect that goes over the, the doses that will increase the effectiveness or the response to the, uh, to the chemical or to the treatment. But uh, as you go further, you will end up with some adverse effects. This can be summarized in a framework for pharmacotherapeutics. And uh, if you would see, on this slide, what we do is we're looking at a sub-therapeutic level of, let's suppose, whatever the therapy might be, some uh, pharmacological agent. Then we have therapeutic levels, and then we get up to toxic levels. But if we were to look at this now from natural therapies or physiologic therapies, what we find is we may have sub-physiologic levels, then physiologic or restorative levels of whatever that practice or that activity might be. And if we overdo it, we can get to pathologic levels. And that's where I'd like to uh, take off and show uh, some of the following issues. Naturally, uh, nutrients and calories, this is part of how we live this, but part of, uh, of everyday life. But nutrients, uh, if you go to the left of this, uh, of this bar that I have there, you would end up with a nutrient deficiency. And nutrient deficiencies usually produce problems. If you go to the right, in some cases, you may end up with hypervitaminosis. That's you, you have too much of that thing involved. If we look at calories, we may have people who have calorie deficiencies, and protein calorie deficiencies uh, can be severe in different parts of the world. And if you go to the right, we end up with overfeeding, but there's that middle ground, that, that green area, where there's a good balance. It is not too little, not too much, and that seems to be the sweet spot. If we were to look at this uh, from the point of view of the RDAs, 
uh, this is whether we, we endorse RDAs or we don't, it doesn't matter. The idea is the same. So in the next slide, what we see is that as you go from a low dose of, uh, of some, uh, some nutrient over to a high dose of that nutrient, you may, you may go from a, a state of deficiency or inadequacy, okay, where there's disease associated with that. Then we'll get to the green area where things are going well. And then we go, if we keep on going and we increase that, that dose, we may get to an area where the uh, nutrient can become toxic. Now, one study uh, uh, from Walter and Chang at the Murphy Center Foundation, Murphy Cancer Foundation uh, in Indiana, they looked at, at dogs and uh, with a prostate cancer model. And what they found was very interesting. They, they used five different lines of, uh, of, uh, of uh, thought to get to this point. One large study looked at things from the point of view of giving selenium. Another one was looking, an observational study, looking at what happens as people had different, uh, different ingestion of, of selenium. And at the bottom of this graph, you see two different things, risk on both sides, one coming down and one going up. If you put those two things together, you end up with a U-shaped curve. And actually, the best situation for the prevention of prostate cancer happens to be at the bottom of that U. And that is the sweet spot. That's where we are looking for, for just about any of the natural therapies that we are going to be talking about. We'll see that, uh, that the way we are designed is that we have, if we have too little, we have a problem. And if we have too much, we have a problem. This one is with selenium. This uh, next one is looking at, uh, at calories and reducing calories and increasing calories for different kinds of animals. And what you'd see here is an inverted U-shape as you go from left to right with declining calorie intake also going from left to right and, and uh, lifespan going from bottom to top. As you go from left to right, you would see that as you restrict the calories, the lifespan actually increases. And then when you overfeed, the lifespan actually goes down. This, we believe, happens in humans as well. The next slide is looking at uh, protein calorie intake and adiposity. And you would see that it follows a curve. This is, of course, a, a, a diagrammatic representation. It's not actual data. But what you see here is that on the lower side, on the left side of the screen, we would have poor health, decreased survival because the calories and protein intake is too low. On the right side, we may have decreased survival and poor health. Why? Because we have excess calories. We end up with metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, and we have all of the uh, uh, things associated with that, including uh, the NCDs and cancer. In the middle is where we have optimal uh, tissue and organ function. So balance is very important. And the issue here is not maximums and minimums, but actually the issue is one of being able to optimize the function of the individual. The next one is from The Lancet, uh, looking, at, uh, looking at BMI. And uh, the first panel is looking at all-cause mortality. Uh, and you would see that all-cause mortality has a U-shaped curve or a J-shaped curve. If the left side is truncated a little bit, it looks more like a J than a U. But it's the same idea, okay? Uh, what we see in the various parameters that we use, you see the same shape in males and females the same kind of shape as you go from a low BMI to uh, what we would call an optimal BMI over to an excessively high BMI, 
you would have uh, variations in the disease processes and death. So we can summarize by saying it's optimizing versus minimizing and maximizing. U-shaped dose responses happen to be genetic and behavioral, and they enhance survival. Uh, the optimality, if you will, is a broad concept, and it's woven into the fabric of all biological processes. And this concept of optimality, that is uh, adequate balance, is not only biological, physiological, and medical. It is actually social as well. Okay? So now, some of the, the treatments that we uh, were looking at, or some of the elements that we were looking at for treating the Spanish flu, and which we are saying may be helpful for COVID-19, uh, we'll go to the next side and look at the benefits of sun exposure. Well, as you would expect, too little sun causes a problem and too much sunshine causes a problem. So it's optimal sun exposure that does what it is uh, the best for us. So again, this balance and optimizing of our system. If we look at the global burden uh, of disease due to ultraviolet radiation exposure, we would see an inverted uh, graph from what we just saw, which was looking more like an N than a U, it's an inverted U. Uh, now, uh, on the next slide, you will see the, the typical U-shaped curve of uh, what happens as we have uh, low amounts and then good amounts and then too much of, uh, of uh, ultraviolet radiation and both ends causing disease and the middle actually being the optimal range. Okay. Now, the next one may surprise, well, maybe it wouldn't surprise because we talked about that here already. Uh, as we look at exercise, too little exercise, of course, causes problems. But there is an issue with too much exercise as well. And what this slide is showing is that the optimal range is having enough exercise, uh, actually having uh, quite a good deal of exercise and not being sedentary, but not uh, going so far that you end up with injury and uh, immune suppression because of uh, overdoing it. The next slide actually shows some of the mechanisms involved. Uh, it's, a, it's a very elegant um, diagram looking at exercise intensity, duration, and frequency, and the acute effects on the left and the chronic effects on the right, uh, excessive oxidative stress on one side on the acute side, and uh, lack of oxidative stress on the other side. And of course, what we end up with, if you go to either of the extremes, we end up with problems. But if we're in the middle, we do very well. Now, the next uh, slide is looking at something that we might have thought uh, was all good, and that is HDL cholesterol. In this particular European study, what they, what they showed was that uh, people who had excessively high levels of HDL cholesterol actually had an increase in mortality. And this was in men and women, as you see in, in this slide, men on the left, uh, women on the, on the right. And uh, the bell-shaped curve is uh, uh, diagrammed there in blue in the middle. So here, even something that is that we would consider very good, like HDL cholesterol, has this. Now, I must say that this is the only study that has uh, actually demonstrated this, so this would need to be shown elsewhere. But because it is following this U-shaped curve, we believe that it is, uh, it is probably going to pan out. The next one is looking at sleep. And I'm not going to get into all of the mechanisms because that will be discussed uh, later by Dr. Schwelt. But here what we see is that uh, now this slide, you'll have to read it from right to left. As you go from right to left, top to bottom, we see what happens as we have more sleep, we end up with some issues, uh, sleep-related issues, 
uh, at the top. And at the bottom, we have other sleep-related issues dealing with loss of sleep. But in the middle is where we have the best results. And from this particular study, they were looking at six to eight hours of sleep was being optimal. This was the balance. They were looking at uh, over 100,000 individuals between the ages of 35 and 70 in 21 countries that uh, include all of the major regions of the world. So we think that this study was uh, pretty robust. Looking at sleep and immune function, uh, sleep loss actually leads to uh, some pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine expression. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But also too much sleep also, uh, can also cause circadian rhythm dysfunction and of course decreases someone's uh, anyone's ability to be able to uh, get out into the sunshine in a regular fashion. And so these two things may be uh, implied or uh, implicated, sorry, in, um, in decreasing uh, one's immune function. But there was one study very uh, elegantly uh, done by uh, Grandier uh, and uh, colleagues. And what they looked at was uh, sleep and the immune function relating to uh, the, the marker of inflammation, CRP. And if you look at, at, uh, at the next slide on your screen, you would see on the right side, uh, overall men and women, but the major portion of the screen is where you would look at the overall unadjusted and, uh, and adjusted uh, data. And you would see in the unadjusted, it, it follows a U-shaped pattern. And on the adjusted side, it follows almost a J-shaped pattern. So this is uh, part of the issue. The immune function is it varies depending on how much sleep we have. In this particular study, they looked at less than five hours of sleep, and that was detrimental. And it looks at greater than nine hours of sleep, and that also was detrimental. So even sleep. But now let's get to uh, something that's, uh, I think, a crucial issue. The next one is looking at the effect of sleep and various kinds of, of uh, mental functioning. And in this particular case, what we see is that verbal functioning followed a U-shaped curve, that uh, sleep duration uh, and uh, the overall cognitive function followed a U-shaped curve, and also reasoning followed a U-shaped curve. There was not that much in short-term memory change uh, and the authors did not find a statistically significant uh, result with that. But here is what they say. These findings have significant real-world implications because many people, including those in positions of responsibility, operate on very little sleep. And doctors and nurses and politicians, they, that's part of their life. And they may suffer from impaired reasoning and problem solving and communication skills on a daily basis. And this should cause us some pause as we look at what's going on there. So imagine we're not even able to evaluate what we're supposed to be evaluating. And we may not even be able to, uh, to assess our lack of sleep or even our too much sleep. Because as we become sleep impaired or oversleeping, we, we may end up with uh, problems with reasoning itself. Uh, this will have implications as well for uh, what we'll call temperance or self-control that I'm sure will be discussed a little bit later. So the clinical objective in using any of these therapies, 
looking at life satisfaction, quality of life, health span, lifespan, balance, temperance, prudence, timeliness of, uh, of using the therapy, appropriateness of what you're going to use, and uh, looking at all dimensions of well-being, mental, social, spiritual, and physical, all of these come into play. But ultimately, we have to ask the question, what do we want? We want optimal function in all of these, not maximums, not minimums. If we're going to go physiologic, we want it to be optimized, optimal, balanced function. Thank you so much, Dr. Zeno. I really appreciated that talk. And I think it's a perfect segue and a perfect introduction to tonight's topic, which is a combination of not just sleep, but we're looking at specifically, as has been discussed, self-restraint. We've clearly seen we can avoid self-restraint and go to a maximum capacity, which could be deleterious. We wanna look now at sleep. Specifically, what are the benefits of sleep and the immune system as we face this COVID-19 crisis, and particularly as we face a reopening of our world and particularly our community. I want to invite my special friend and guest, Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt is a pulmonologist, an intensivist, and a sleep expert. He's assistant professor at Loma Linda University, and he is the co-founder of MedCram. Dr. Schwelt, we are really looking forward to tonight's presentation on sleep and the effect it has on the immune system as we embrace this issue and continue to strive forward with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Schwelt. Thanks, Layla. So sleep has been around for a long time, and it's been well known for a long time that it is a producer of good, of good health, of good feeling. If you go all the way back even to William Shakespeare in Henry IV, Part Two, he says, Oh, sleep, oh, gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse. How have I frighted thee that though no more will weigh my eyelids down? and sleep my senses in forgetfulness. So it sounds like somebody had some insomnia there in Henry IV. You know, uh, we have a lot of sleep problems going on in the United States and the world, and this is a real problem. Sleep deprivation affects memory, cognition, motivation, and the effects are compounded when it's long-term. Um, adolescents normally, naturally, fall asleep later and get up later. We know this, anybody that has an adolescent living in the house, uh, knows that it's hard to get them up in the morning. At the same time, adults and elderly especially like to go to bed earlier and get up earlier. We know that uh, grandma gets up at five in the morning and she's already up and around, right? So it's uh, it's something that we see. It's part of the circadian rhythm. We're not going to get too much into that tonight because we have a limited amount of time, but it's it's something that you should understand that there's two different processes going on in your brain. There's a circadian rhythm, which uh, gets cues from the environment. And then there is the homeostasis uh, rhythm, which has to do with how much you're awake and the substance called adenosine, which builds up. Um, anyway, there is a lot of sleep problems that, that can occur both in the young and in the elderly. So in the young, research has shown that sleep problems among adolescents are a major, major risk factor for suicidal thoughts, death by suicide, which ranks one of the leading causes of fatalities in uh, people 15 to 24 years of age. So these are our students. Um, and this link of suicide, suicidal thoughts remains strong, independent of other factors. So we can see here that sleep is not just a luxury, it is a necessity. You know, in our elderly patients, it's also uh, something to be uh, desired about 30 to 48 percent in the elderly have problems with insomnia. It's a it's a very 
problematic issue. It's uh, sometimes associated with medical issues, pain, uh, things of that nature. So what do you do? It's not just a matter of when you go to bed. It's, uh, it's complex. Well, how much sleep should you get? This is a slide from the National Sleep Foundation, which beautifully illustrates how many hours of sleep somebody should get. If you're between the age of 14 to 17, 8 to 10 hours, 18 to 25, 7 to 9, 26 to 64, um, uh, 7 to 9 hours of sleep. And you can see here clearly that the amount of hours of sleep are very generous, but really should never drop below 7 hours of sleep. How many of us are actually getting the adequate amount of sleep that we should be getting? Well, let's, we looked at the quantity. Let's look at the quality of sleep. So there's something about um, sleep at night. I want to get into a little bit of the detail. When you go to sleep, it's not like an on-off switch, right? So it, you go into different phases. And this is the kind of the, um, the original classification of sleep. You have awake, you have REM sleep, which stands for rapid eye movement sleep. It's a special kind of sleep where you're paralyzed, but your eyes move um, and you dream, generally speaking. And then there's stage one, two, three, and four. Um, three and four being this very deep, slow wave sleep that can occur. And if you'll notice here, at the beginning of the night, there's a spe special type of sleep called delta wave or slow wave. Um, these are all synonymous. And this is particularly, as you can see here, concentrated at the beginning of the night. This slow wave sleep we're going to talk about later because it's very important. Towards the end of the night, no, we can uh, we can see concentrated there REM sleep. And generally speaking, uh, delta wave sleep, this part at the beginning, was associated with growth hormone, was associated with being a physically restorative type of sleep. And so we see this often in very young people. Slow wave sleep is what we see. And it's what really makes you feel good after you've gone to bed and gotten up and felt well rested. Some of you may not have felt that in a long time. Um, REM sleep, on the other hand, is toward the end of the night. And this has been associated with a mentally restorative sleep. And we can see that in this type of sleep, people are paralyzed normally. They're not moving. Um, it's also a, a type of sleep where you can have worsening obstructive sleep apnea because the areas and muscles of your our neck are more relaxed and therefore more apt to collapse. And so that's another whole issue that we're not going to get into is the treatment of some of these nocturnal diseases. But Remember now, and keep an eye on this, is that if you go to bed later and you're not getting that sleep, what's key here is that you're missing out on that delta wave or slow wave sleep, which we'll talk about. And that comes on as part of the circadian rhythm. So if you're really supposed to be going to bed at 10 o'clock and you're going to bed at 12 o'clock, well, you're missing out on those two hours that is slow wave sleep. So something to think about. So... Um, what happens if you don't get sleep? Let's just take a look at that. This was a study that was published in 2018. And what they did is they took six healthy men in their 20s, had them stay up late at night, all night, two days uh, baseline, and then they made them stay up all night. They took blood samples every four hours on over a thousand different proteins. And uh, what they did is they monitored to see what happened to those proteins. Proteins that would normally spike at, at one particular part of the day, where would it spike? And what would happen to levels that are related to very important functions in the body? So just a highlight of some of those. One of those hormones that changed was glucagon. It rose higher at night than would normally be during the daytime. And this, is, of course, is a risk for diabetes. So this is just, remember, remember this is only one or two nights that they missed out here. And already we're starting to see changes in some of the hormones. There's something called FGF-19. This is normally a calorie boosting, burning 
uh, hormone. So this would make you nice and thin. But what they found was that this protein was decreased and there was less calorie burning. And so that they felt this was a risk for weight gain. So overall, what they found the study showed in the study, just by staying awake for a 24-hour period, that it could rapidly lead to changes in more than 100 different proteins in the blood, including ones that have an effect on blood sugar. As we've talked about earlier tonight, immune function, which is really important when we're talking about COVID-19, and metabolism. And over time, these biochemical changes in the blood protein levels can elevate your risk for issues of diabetes, weight gain, and even cancer, because these are cells going around taking things out. So what about uh, pulling an all-nighter, uh, as, as you would say? Well, there was a, a study that was done, and David Ernst, a PhD professor at Texas A&M, had a lot of things to say about pulling these all-nighters. These are things that students do to study the night before a big test. And this has something to do with the type of brain power that you would need for self-restraint, right? So if you need brain power to answer a test question, you need to be able to think. That uses the executive portion of your brain. That's also the portion of your brain that allows you to think clearly and to make and rational do rational decisions. So what did they find? They found that sleep deprivation's effect on working memory is staggering, he says. Your brain loses efficiency with each hour of sleep deprivation. He said, if you want to do well on a test, you need to study in small increments well in advance of your exam to get the best score. In other words, use it or lose it. He says, it's fruitless to prepare for an exam hours beforehand. The optimal study method is to stay on top of things and prepare by studying in small chunks. Now watch what he says. He says, you do this multiple times a day, three to four days in advance. And then by going through the information numerous times, you're allowing your brain to move those long-term facts into long-term memory. And so what's doing that? What's doing that is the number of sleep periods in, in between this. And so if you study the day before a test, or if you try to prepare the day before a test, you're not going to move it into long-term memory. So repeating information, whether out loud or verbalizing, helps spur the process forward. And as the day progresses into night, the night, the brain's performance actually significantly decreases. So by studying at night or trying to do stuff at night, you're not really working at your peak. So instead of staying up all night, he would recommend studying as much as you can until bedtime and then waking up early in the morning to go over the test material again. Why? Because sleep rejuvenates by providing an opportunity for the metabolism, body, and brain to slow down and to recover. And it's crucial that it's not missed. So if this is what's needed to study for an exam and to, to regurgitate the information that you need to know to put it on the test or to actually think even critically, these are the same neurons that are involved in what we're talking about tonight, which is temperance. Let's get back to that slow wave sleep. So this is a Sleepio blog uh, in the UK, and this is a, a gentleman by the name of Simon Kyle. And um, this is what he says about slow wave sleep. He says, it's actually during the first third of the night that we experience the deepest part of our sleep. That's that slow wave or delta sleep. We move into deep sleep more rapidly, and it's the phase of sleep during which we're least likely to be disturbed and wake up. This deep or slow wave sleep is the most restorative part of our sleep. We experience low levels of the stress hormone cortisol, as well as reductions in sympathetic nervous system activity. This is the stimulating activity associated with fight or flight response. We don't want that. We also experience increased parasympathetic nervous activity, which is associated with rest and digest activity. So this is really the optimal part to sleep. And if we're staying up late and we're looking at iPads or television, 
and we're getting that blue light into our eye, we're going to miss out uh, on that part of sleep. He also says that slow wave sleep is also associated with memory consolidation and our ability to learn and overall alertness the next day. Again, executive function. He says the emerging picture from experimental research is that slow wave sleep is involved in critical aspects of cognition and daytime functioning, and that it assists with keeping our brain and body in optimal health. Uh, if you're waking up feeling unrefreshed, he says it's likely that you don't have enough slow wave sleep. And where was slow wave sleep again? At the beginning of the night, the beginning of the night. So in other words, those hours at the beginning of the night we're finding out now are probably the most important. So now slow wave sleep happens to be the holy grail right now of research in sleep medicine. You can see here, here's from Nature Reviews, slow wave sleep takes the leading role in memory reorganization. Here's another article, slow wave sleep, does it matter? And, and we see articles like this over and over again. So the key here is to make sure that we're getting enough sleep and we're getting the right quality of sleep, making sure we're not missing out on that at the end of the day. Okay, so what is it about this that we can improve? Here's some practical things that we can do, and we'll talk more about this later at the practical aspect. Maintain a regular sleep routine, avoid naps, and that's because when you take a nap, your adenosine levels increase and it's less likely to sleep. Don't stay awake in bed. Don't watch TV in bed. Again, you're exposing your eyes to bright light. Don't drink caffeinated drinks. It's going to keep you awake. That's an adenosine issue. Avoid inappropriate substances that interfere with sleep. Exercise regularly. Have a quiet, comfortable bedroom. Don't watch the clock. Put the clock away. Have a comfortable pre-bedtime routine. Maybe you could do those contrast showers that we talked about at the first symposium. Uh, light before bed shifts bedtime later. So what I'm saying here is that if you expose your eyes to bright light uh, before you go to bed, it's going to make you want to go to bed later, but it's also going to want you want to wake up later. And that's not a good thing either. Okay, and so real quickly, we also talked about COVID-19 specifically. And this slide is a slide from our MedCram uh, videos to remind me that there are a number of controlled trials which have looked at sleep. And in this one here, they sleep deprived subjects and they found that those subjects were less likely to have viral titers against the influenza after vaccination. So clearly here, I mean, they have half the titers that the uh, control aspects did. And then this is another study where they looked at patients and they dropped rhinovirus into their nose and saw if they had an infection. What they found is that it correlated with how much sleep these patients got. If they got less than seven hours of sleep, they were almost three times more likely to get the cold. If they were um, not getting adequate efficiency of sleep, they were almost six times more likely to get an infection. And you know, it harkens back to our discussion, Layla, that we had regarding the 1918 flu pandemic. Remember, Dr. Rubel was uh, discussing how those in the sanitarium were doing better than those in the army camps because of the remedies that they were using, sunlight, fresh air, things that we've been talking about here. And, you know, Dr. Rubel went on, for those of you who don't know, to become the president of the College of Medical Evangelists, which later became Loma Linda University. And I have some pictures here of early pictures of the College of Medical Evangelists sitting up on the hill and looking over uh, the Inland Empire. Now you would, you would hardly recognize where it is. Well, as it turns out, the one of the founders of this institution 
uh, was a lady by the name of Ellen G. White. And uh, there is a statue up there on the hill. And, you know, it, it makes me so it's, it's just amazing to me to know how much these people really understood about the human body at that time. We have Dr. Rubel, who was implementing some of these things that he had learned. Um, but it's interesting to me to learn about what Ellen G. White had written about sleep. Um, here's her talking to her secretaries about proper rest. It's interesting in light of what we've just learned. She says, make it a habit not to sit up after nine o'clock. Every light should be extinguished. You know, not just turn down the lights, but I wonder how she would have known that light may stimulate the retina, which would shift the circadian rhythm. I think they had an understanding of this back then. She also says, set your hour to rise early and retire at an early hour. You know, she must have known maybe about slow wave sleep. No, maybe I don't think she did. Uh, but she certainly knew that getting your sleep was really important. And then finally, I think this is the, the one that takes the cake. We understand that slow wave sleep at the beginning of the night was just really, really important. Um, and that's usually before 12 o'clock. This is what she says. She says here that two hours of good sleep before 12 o'clock is worth more than four hours after 12 o'clock. And right, she is. So we've talked about the amount of hours of sleep, how it's involved with immunity, how it's involved with cognition and temperance and making right choices. And now through the miracles of science, we're able to uh, actually look deep down into the core of the brain and find these signals and determine between slow wave sleep and REM sleep. How much more are we going to understand in the future? I don't know, but I can tell you what we know now, we know enough to put into practice. And Layla, with that, I will um, send it back to you. Dr. Schwald, I, I truly appreciated your presentation. In fact, while you were speaking, I was making little notes to myself. Your presentation is phenomenal. And what I found so interesting about it was your quotes up on the screen about that uh, individual, some of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen G. White, you mentioned. Again, in that book, Ministry of Healing, we offered to you last week amazing book. And you'll find these principles that we've been talking about. But again, when we look back to the past in the 1918 pandemic, we see principles that were utilized back then by our by various institutions, again, referred to as sanitariums, that scientifically we're seeing fulfilled in this COVID-19 improving of our immune system. What I also thought was so interesting is the effect that the sleep cycle plays on the frontal lobe or the ability to make decisions, if you will, of self-restraint. If we're not making good decisions, it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? We're Let's just take sleep for a second. We're gonna make poor decisions about sleep and then the medical students in the study that they were discussing were not able to make wise decisions about other things. And as a result, we're kind of in a vicious cycle. The opposite goes into effect as well, as we're gonna hear right now from Dr. Neil Nedley. Dr. Nedley, I am really looking forward to your presentation. Dr. Nedley is both an internal medicine specialist. He's also an intensivist. He has a hospital position. And he's also the president of Weimar Institute. Dr. Nedley, thank you for sharing with us specifically on the mind and self-restraint. Dr. Nedley, we can't hear you. Uh... Thank you very much. Good to be with you this evening. Self-restraint is, of course, very important for us to be able to take advantage of even 
the sleep principles that we've learned tonight, but about so much others, uh, so many others as well. And uh, your immune system is indeed affected, of course, uh, by uh, self-restraint. Uh, there are substances, first of all, when we speak about temperance, most of the time we're speaking of substances. And uh, there are substances such as alcohol uh, and tobacco that have a suppressant effect on the frontal lobe, nicotine more, uh, more subtle in its effect. But alcohol also affects the frontal lobe of the brain. And of course, it um, perverts the judgment but in addition to that, it suppresses the immune system. You know, since we're speaking of COVID-19, uh, we know that a lot of people are involved in disinfectants to uh, disinfect uh, their hands <coughs> or their surfaces. And we know that alcohol is one of those disinfectants. Soap and water is another, but there are many others as well. Uh, but uh, the news media late, lately has been telling people to avoid disinfectants, but they have not been so particular about telling people to avoid alcohol uh, <clears throat> as far as ingesting disinfectants and alcohol. And really, alcohol does suppress uh, the immune system. It increases the risk of pneumonia. It increases the risk of actually a host of different types of pneumonia, including aspiration pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, viral pneumonia, and it has a suppressant effect on the immune system, not to mention its effects on the lack of self-restraint when we ingest it. And uh, that's why if you are a tobacco user, virtually everybody has to give up alcohol first before they're going to be able to give up tobacco which can be even more addictive uh, than alcohol. Caffeine uh, is a drug as well. It's actually not a nutrient uh, like a lot of people uh, think. And uh, caffeine actually blocks the adenosine receptors in the frontal lobe. And that can also cause a lack of self-restraint, such as increased risk of gossiping. It's actually enough the world's most popular psychoactive drug and it does increase your perception of being awake and temporarily elevate your mood, but it also increases the risk of heart disease, low birth weight, uh, and uh, it also uh, increases the risk of uh, anxiety and depression. And it's one of the reasons why in our residential anxiety and depression program, it's a caffeine-free program. In addition, it lessens the sleep quality it actually cuts your melatonin production in half for six hours. And uh, we also need to know that the half-life of caffeine is six hours. So even your morning cup of coffee, you still have caffeine on board uh, in the middle of the night, suppressing uh, that melatonin production. And melatonin is a very potent antioxidant that's also thought to be very important in regards to preventing the overactive immune system response, which is that cytokine storm, which ends up producing a person that is in need of ICU care and ventilators. And uh, there was an article written just uh, a week ago, I think two weeks ago now, uh, explaining that if we get more melatonin at night, this can be one of the beneficial ways of preventing us from contracting the worst types of the COVID complications. In addition, it reduces blood flow to the frontal lobe of the brain, affecting executive functions. 
such as memory and planning skills. Working memory does go down because that's a frontal lobe function. And it reduces creative thinking and problem-solving abilities. And so if we're really going to be temperate and be on the best lifestyle for uh, preventing uh, problems with our immune system, I think that would also include a lack of caffeine. And so then this gets into this whole issue of self-restraint, which is uh, one of our main emphasis tonight. What is the definition of it? It's the ability to keep ourselves from acting on our behavioral or emotional impulses. Sounds pretty simple, but one of the most quoted researchers in all the world recently stated, self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. In fact, he made an eloquent case that it's the number one problem in all of the world. Uh, maybe we should emphasize that. That means COVID-19 is not the number one problem in all the world. That means even the environment is not the number one problem in all the world. It means even immigration issues are not the number one problem in all the world. These are significant problems, but when we compare them to this particular problem, it actually sinks into insignificance. Uh, and in reality, it's amazing that more people don't talk about this problem. I notice uh, politicians from both sides of the aisle tend to ignore it and virtually everybody tends to ignore this number one problem in all the world. You might say, well, how can it be even a bigger problem than what you just mentioned? Well, heart disease is the number one killer in the Western world, and we know how to prevent it through nutrition and lifestyle. I remember going to a conference in 1991, the first international conference on the elimination of coronary artery disease, and that conference was given by professors from Harvard, UCSF, uh, the Ivy League schools, Cornell, uh, others. But, uh, and I was excited because I thought my life would change dramatically as an internist in 25 years when heart disease was no longer in the top 10 causes of death. Well, guess what still is the number one cause of death in America? It's heart disease. It has gone down. Um, over what it was 25 years ago. But the reason why it hasn't been eliminated in the top 10 causes of death is simply because we're not putting into practice what we know is best for our heart. And that is a problem of the mind, not a problem of the heart. And that is a problem of lack of self-control. Harvard states that 80% of cancers would be prevented uh, if we put into practice what we know is best for our lifestyle. But it's not just cancers, it's diabetes, which has become an epidemic. Yes, genetics loads the gun for type 2 diabetes, but it's lifestyle that pulls the trigger. And you can have the bad gene for type 2 diabetes and never experience it your entire life if you have comprehensive self-control and if you're educated to know what is best. Sexually transmitted diseases are going up significantly. Uh, and those are, of course, diseases that come about from lack of self-restraint. Uh, alcoholism, by definition, any addiction is actually uh, the underlying cause is lack of self-restraint or lack of self-control. Uh, murder rates that are going up, uh, often due to lack of self-control. Sexual addiction issues are at an all-time high in our society. 
And we were told back in the 1990s that if we had pornography widely available and condoms widely available, that we would actually lower rape and sexually transmitted diseases. That has not occurred, although the, the pornography and condoms have been readily available. Um, what they predicted would occur did not, but yet there's been no apology from those um, uh, data analyzers who had that agenda. Um, and in reality, lack of self-control is even higher today than it was uh, back then. Depression, once we know the principles of mentally healthful living, depression is actually due to lack of self-control. We talked about cancer, 80% of them can be prevented um, if we have a good comprehensive positive lifestyle. Unwanted pregnancy, lack of self-control, adultery and divorce, often due to lack of self-control. Underachievement in college, I am a college president and I can tell you the number one reason why college presidents lose sleep in this country, we've all been told, is due to the mental health of our students and students who could achieve who are not achieving due to lack of self-control. Financial failure, often due to lack of self-control. Relationship problems, often due to lack of self-control. And then when we get into even more common addictions than alcoholism, such as technology addiction, where it's now seen that the Generation um, Z and Generation Y, 70 to 80% of them actually qualify as being addicted to their smartphones and screens and having significant consequences as a result. And even the elderly are succumbing to this as well. You can see, this is just a partial list, but we could expand this. You can see that if we could eliminate these problems that are, uh, in other words, eliminate them through comprehensive self-control, we'd be able to solve a lot of issues. And we'd also, of course, be able to open up the world uh, easier as well uh, and not be as fearful of COVID-19 if we all have self-control. Well, interestingly, self-control failure is not just a modern issue. Notice what the Apostle Paul stated. I don't really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. And then he utters one of the saddest texts in all of ancient literature. Oh, what a miserable and wretched person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And so when we have lack of self-control, it results in wretchedness. And of course, the big topic tonight is, what is the secret for avoiding this wretchedness? Now, the secular psychologist will tell us the secret is actually temperance. What is temperance? Moderation in the things that are healthy and abstinence in the things that are unhealthy. And it turns out strict temperance requires comprehensive self-control. Let me explain. All of us have selective self-control uh, in certain areas, but comprehensive self-control is what really produces, as we study it, the psychological good life. Let me give an example that most of the world is familiar with. I go around and lecture around the world, and I live in California, 
And the most famous governor in the history of California is not Ronald Reagan worldwide. It's actually Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it required meticulous self-control for Arnold to build up those big muscles. That's how he got famous. It wasn't being governor that got him famous. It was actually being Mr. Universe. And then, of course, that gave him access to uh, being an actor and those sorts of things. And it does require meticulous self-control to build up those muscles. But in an area of his life where it was more important for him to have self-control, when his maid was cleaning his house, he lacked it. And he lost the love of his life due to not having comprehensive self-control. And so th this is our big secret. Uh, how can we have this? Marty Seligman from University of Pennsylvania and uh, Dr. Peterson from University of Michigan have written a classic uh, book on positive character strengths in the largest chapter they wrote was on temperance. And they mentioned in our endeavor to measure this class of strengths, we have found that among people in the mainstream developed world, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. Regardless, the strengths of temperance are very important and they have a rich array of positive consequences for the psychological good life. This is what everyone is searching for. Everyone is searching for the good life. We're not just trying to avoid COVID-19. We want the good life. And of course, people that are in search of that are wanting us to open up the country so they can start to experience the good life again. And of course, in order to do this successfully, we need to have um, self-restraint. We need to have self-control. Now, why do we know that self-control is linked to the psychological good life? Because social scientists have been studying it. Let me give you a little example of a self-control test um, that's known as a pretty comprehensive uh, test. I am good at resisting temptation. If you say very much to that, you're rated as high self-control. I have a hard time breaking bad habits. If you say that, you have low self-control. I do certain things that are bad for me if they are fun. That's also low self-control. If you have trouble saying no, that's low self-control. If getting up in the morning is hard for you, that could be low self-control. If you're blurting out whatever is on your mind, low self-control. Spending too much money is low self-control, but if you keep everything neat, you would be rated as high self-control in that area. If you get carried away by your feelings, that's low self-control. You do many things on the spur of the moment or don't keep secrets very well or often interrupt people. That is also low self-control, but if you're always on time, that's high self-control. If you're not easily discouraged and eat healthy foods, uh, that's high self-control, but if pleasure and fun sometimes keep you from getting work done or you have trouble concentrating, that's low self-control. And if you can't stop yourself from doing something, even if you know it is wrong, that's low self-control. But if you're able to work effectively towards long-term goals, that's high self-control. Well, when we study a group of people and they take this test, we find out people that do uh, high on this test. In other words, if they have high self-control, they have better personality adjustment, higher self-worth. They're better at controlling their anger. They have fewer symptoms of mental health-related issues. They accept themselves as valuable, worthy individuals and are relatively able to sustain this favorable view of self across time and circumstances but they don't become narcissists or they have an inflated view of their self. In other words, they have high self-worth, 
but not necessarily high self-esteem. They're more conscientious. They're more emotionally stable. They make better relationship partners. They get along better with other people. They're more, even though they themselves have high self-control, they're more accommodating of others and they report more satisfying relationships and better adjustment in their relationships. Their families are much more cohesive, less interpersonal conflict, better perspective, better empathy of others, and they have more secure interpersonal attachments. They manage money well, they spend less, and they save more. And of course, they have fewer mental and physical health symptoms. This study showed the relationships between self-control and mental and physical health outcomes were only partially mediated by avoidance coping style. So it's not just avoidance coping style that produces this benefit. The data reveals that lower self-control is associated with unhealthy coping strategies, which in turn are associated with worse mental health outcomes and more adverse physical health symptoms, including physical health symptoms that have to do with immunity. Now, Dr. Zeno talked about earlier the, um, the U-shaped curve or J-shaped curve. And the question is, that, can, of course, can be the case with sleep. It can be the case with exercise, with nutrition. But what about temperance? Interestingly, you cannot be too temperate. In other words, they have found no undesirable consequences of high self-control, and they've tested for it. And that's what we call curvilinearity to see if excessive self-control or what some might call over-control might produce negative consequences, but no negative patterns were found. And this has been commented on by saying, we think that there might be a problem with too much self-control. It seems intuitive, but in reality, there are no problems that surface. The more you have of temperance, the better your health outcomes are, period. And that makes our acronym at Weimar, New Start, the, the T's in particular seem to be different. If we take the T's out, we just have a new SAR, which is kind of COVID-19, it's SARS too. But if we have the two T's in place, which those two T's you really can't get too much of, that produces a tremendous health benefit. So, in order to have self-control, we have to be able to look beyond the immediate situation. The ability to transcend this is crucial. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness facilitates self-regulation. That future-mindedness has to do with hope. This is why the frontal lobe is particularly important. We want to avoid frontal lobe suppressants. Uh, not just those substances, but for instance, sexual excess causes a suppression of the frontal lobe of the brain. Uh, too frequent an orgasm, masturbation, these things have been shown to suppress our frontal lobe and uh, suppress our abilities to have a rational mind to be able to uh, control other aspects of our life, not just the sex part of our life. Dr. Baumeister studied bright lines. And he found that people need these. These really help with self-control. What are they? Zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. He then went on to study, and I wish we had time to show you why he says this, because he's not a religious person, but he teaches at Stanford. 
And he did a very nice controlled study that he writes about in the reference here. And he says, if you believe the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes an especially bright line and it helps with self-control. And so establishing bright lines, what were lines that we're not going to cross, establishing worthy goals. A worthy goal would be to keep your immunity up as the country opens. And how are we going to do this comprehensively? A goal of enhancing our frontal lobe. That means even not participating in certain musical choices that can actually suppress the frontal lobe of the brain. Slowing down a limbic system in overdrive. And uh, one of those ways would be uh, maybe undergoing a sex fast, which can help to slow down that limbic system. But ultimately, what we have found is the key to self-control, Those, all of those things help. The ultimate key is something that's not so intuitive. We have found that it's self-sacrificing love that brings about comprehensive self-control. In other words, if we're not controlling ourselves in certain areas, it means that we have selfishness in that area of our life. And if we're willing to put all on the altar of sacrifice and embrace the entire New Start principles, including trust in God, this is where the spiritual aspect has a tremendous role uh, to play that self-sacrificing love is something that can come from outside of us. So in reality, although we call it self-control and all the studies are on self-control, it seems to be in order to have that comprehensive self-control, we need to be able to access a love that is not a selfish love, such as what we're born with, but a selfless love that, that comes from outside of us. And we'll discuss that more when we get to the practical sections. I hope this has been helpful, Dr. Lewis. Thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. Yes, that was phenomenal. I, I truly appreciate it. I am sure our viewers did as well. What we're gonna go to right now is our practical section. How do we take these principles, which so many are absolutely pertinent to our lives, just as we open the globe up and we begin to look at how to go back into our regular, in some capacity, regular functioning prior to COVID-19 and improving our immune system. But how do we apply that to our lives in general? I'm going to invite my a good friend again, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel, to give a again, a synopsis on how do we prevent the second spike in light of specifically sleep and self-restraint, Dr. Zeno. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Leela. Um, well, we have to help people to stay alive and be prepared for round two because it seems as though we will be having a round two. Now, the first issue is that COVID-19 is lethal, but it is not the most lethal disease in the world. As, as we were hearing just now, it's not uh, the be-all and end-all of everything. It is a real threat regardless of what the final impact is going to be. And it invokes fear because it kills and there's no proven treatment as of yet. But the COVID-19 pandemic has not suspended the other diseases and the other conditions, the other killers that do their dirty work too. And they certainly don't, uh, the, the COVID-19 virus does not eliminate our need for self-control. However, because of COVID-19, 
this gives us an opportunity to be motivated to, to wake up and to take stock and to think seriously about life and what is important to reprioritize, to get ourselves in shape and, and to be there for those who depend on us, our families, our friends, our patients, and of course our communities, okay? But the first pulse that we have to take is our own because we're human beings, we have concerns, we have doubts, we have joys, and these things affect our minds. And the mind is a terrible thing to waste. We are subject to the same mental, emotional, cognitive, spiritual, and social relational stresses and strains that other people have, and to some extent, to a greater extent. So we need to use an introspectoscope. We need to look inside, but looking inside is not enough. We need to get an honest second opinion. And that best second opinion is to come from somebody who is impartial and who can actually see who we really are and tell us about ourselves. And that's God. If we need help, we need to get help. Please get help because SARS-CoV-2 is an equal opportunity invader. So what ought we to do? We need to be sober and be vigilant. We need to consider the risk of infections, consider the risk of sequelae, comorbidities in all the dimensions of ourselves. Okay, so physical, mental, social, etc., and spiritual. We have to ask ourselves, are we at risk? So I'm asking you, physician, healthcare worker who's uh, on this program, are you at risk? In any of the dimensions, are you at risk? Then you need to take stock and take care of yourself so that you'll be able to take care of others. Who is at risk in your inner circle? Well, if there are people who are at risk, you need to protect them. And you need to be an expert at the basics. And Dr. Nedley I've talked about some of those basics. So you need to try the things that we have been suggesting. Look, look, at, this, uh, look at this picture. There is a, a tube here. It's, it's a conduit for water, but it has multiple leaks. You can't expect that this tube, everything will work fine by just plugging just one or two of those holes. You have to be able to take care of the whole thing in order to get the most bang for your buck. And that's the issue of self-control, sleep, sunshine, uh, rest, and all of the other things that we've been talking about, good nutrition and exercise as well, okay? So people have multiple dysfunctions. So what we need to do is to address the things that we can, okay? We need to address them as quickly as we can. We need to address as many of them as we can, as soon as we can, as much as to the extent that we can, and uh, we need to do this as safely as we can. We don't want to overwhelm the people that we're working with, and we certainly don't want to overwhelm ourselves, but we must remember that the issue is to optimize our function and to get that best life, and we have to think of the whole person, not just the COVID-19 issues. The person is at risk, and we need to engage them in their care. We need to educate them and help them to see what we have been learning and what we now know. Prevention is really much better than cure. And as Dr. Landley said, prevention is the cure in this case. We need to prevent the contagion if possible. We need to reduce the risks uh, of it. And this requires mental vigilance. And it requires us to, to know what to do and to have uh, the control, the self-control to do it. Okay. We need to prevent the progression uh, uh, and, and optimize our health. We need to appropriately, aggressively treat whatever it is that comes up uh, in this particular uh, situation, of course, considering the risk-benefit ratio and understanding 
that we are taking care of the whole person and using all of the resources that are available to us. Now, we have people who are at very high risk. We have people who are at high risk. I'm not going to read these lists to you. You know them. But you need to become familiar with them and educate yourself, too, so that you will be able to best serve other people. But then the great uh, Dr. Francis Peabody, uh, many years ago, back in 1927, in part of his lecture series at Harvard University, he gave them this bit of advice. He says that one of the essential qualities of the clinician is interest in humanity. May I dear call this compassion and love, disinterested love? But he goes on to say, for the secret of the care of the patient is in the caring for the patient. We need to care about the people that we're serving. And this is going to be a very helpful thing for us and for them as we get through this phase of COVID-19 and get prepared, not just for the next phase, but for the rest of life. Thank you so much, Dr. Zeno. I now want to invite again, Dr. Roger Schwelt to give us some practical applications on how we can make sleep an improved aspect in our life. Dr. Schwelt. Yes, thank you very much. Um, we're going to go to the, um, the slide that we had shown before. I wanted to expand a little bit on that because there's a number of things that we can do in general, which are a good idea for everybody. But for some people, it might be different. And so I would encourage you to discuss your issues with your own uh, doctor and, um, and, and sit down with them and go over things because uh, the, the treatment for you as an individual might be different than somebody else. But in general, these are things that I think we can make. And these are listed here by the American Sleep Association. Uh, maintain a regular sleep schedule. And so you don't want to be getting up at different hours on the weekdays versus the weekends. This confuses your circadian rhythm. And you really want to make sure that the same cues at the same time of day are, are happening. Keep in mind that you want to sleep at least seven, probably eight hours of sleep per night. Avoid naps if possible, because naps takes away that drive to go to sleep. And don't stay awake in bed for more than five or 10 minutes. What happens here is that if you are not able to go to sleep and you're in bed, you're associating this insomnia with your bedroom. And so the next time you go into your bedroom, you're going to associate those feelings of inadequacy, uh, of not being able to sleep with your bedroom, and it's going to be hard to shake that. So this is a more of a psychological uh, type of thing. Um, don't watch television or read in bed because what you're doing there is you're associating other activity, other behaviors with your bedroom. And so you're brain is going to be confused. What we want to do is just like Pavlov associated the bell with feeding the dogs, uh, we want to associate your bedroom with sleeping. And so if you're doing other things in there uh, other than that, then it's going to be uh, a dilution of that signal. Uh, certainly watching television, of course, is a bright light, um, and that can cause your circadian rhythm to be delayed because you're exposing it to bright light, inhibiting that much needed melatonin surge that you really should be getting at that point. Um, you know, it says uh, the American uh, Sleep Association says uh, caution with caffeinated drinks. I'm going to make a change and say don't drink caffeinated drinks, especially after what we heard uh, from Dr. Nedley. Avoid inappropriate substances that interfere with sleep. That is a, a very broad range. I mean, even alcohol can uh, make you go to sleep 
quickly. It's a very short acting um, medication that will make you go to sleep. But because it's short acting, it will rebound in the middle of the night and will give you insomnia for the rest of the night. So it's not a good idea for that reason and for many others. Exercising regularly, you know, they used to say, try not to exercise too close to going to bed. And I think that's still a good idea. But they're finding out that even if you exercise close to going to bed, that's better than not exercising at all. And so that is something that I think is very, very good in terms of getting sleep. Have a quiet, comfortable bedroom. Of course, we want to make your sleep experience as good as possible. If you're a, what they call a clock watcher, hide the clock. We don't want to be enhancing your anxiety. We want you to have a nice, peaceful sleep and, and getting your mind into that routine at night, having a sense of trust, um, having a sense of that is, is, is a good thing. Uh, having a comfortable pre-bedtime routine. Another reason not to watch television before you go to bed is there's nothing good on it. And it's only going to ramp up your anxieties, your worries. Sometimes it's very helpful, I find, to have a pad written, a writing pad at the side of your bed that you can write down some of the things that are in your mind. It gives you your body an excuse to say that you're giving it up and uh, you're putting it down onto a pad. It's also not a bad idea to pray and to give up those ideas to someone who can actually do something about it. Um, Light before bed shifts bedtime later as well, as we talked about. That is that melatonin surge that you really, really want to have. Light is going to impair that. So Layla, these are some practical things from a sleep standpoint that you can do to make your uh, immune system better and make you sleep better. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwelt. We really appreciate that. Now we want to hear specifically on how do we make a practical application for addiction. We're looking forward to hearing from Dr. Peter Landless as he shares with us some tidbits and some information on how we can overcome that issue. Well, thank you, Dr. Leela. I think that one of the important things is um, so much has been said so far this evening about the various aspects and components. But I'm going to hone in a little directly on alcohol during the lockdown and beyond. You know, <clears throat> during this lockdown, there's been a, an interesting um, notification put out by the World Health Organization. And they said alcohol is known to be harmful to health in general and is well understood to increase the risk of injury and violence. Now, you know, this is interesting. When you look at all the negative components related to alcohol, you'll see that this consumption increases health vulnerability, risk-taking behaviors, mental health issues and violence. Um, you know, it reminds people that drinking alcohol does not protect them from COVID-19. There's been that kind of rumor going around and encourages governments to enforce measures which limit alcohol consumption. Well, you know, it's very tough to put people directly on cold turkey, but I think also knowledge is very important. And when we think of how much alcohol is consumed and used and generally is such an acceptable so-called social lubricant, we know that it lowers inhibitions, it lowers anxiety, and interestingly, during the first week or the beginning of the first week of lockdown in many states, alcohol sales went up 55% in this country, interestingly. And so we see that an important issue to look at is how do we look at this 
Somebody talked about it as being a medicine. It's actually a poison. It's used by two-thirds of the world's adult population. 10% of these are heavy drinkers. And what we need to look at when it comes to addictions, Leela, you were talking about that, and I think that we need to remember that 10% of people who start drinking after the age even of 20 years of age will become some sort of uh, dependent on alcohol. Those who start drinking before the age of 14, and here's a very important practical tip for us to remember, we have to do education regarding young people particularly. Those who start drinking before the age of 14 years, 40% of those uh, may well become alcohol dependent. And these percentages are significantly increased if there's a first degree family member, father, mother, uncle, aunt, grandfather, grandmother, who has a problem of alcoholism. And so we see that the dependence likelihood is significant, something that we often don't even want to recognize. And of course, we fight this battle of the media, which keeps reminding us, and even in health literature, saying that alcohol is good for your heart. Dr. Nedley was talking about the issue of heart cardiac disease uh, still being the number one. And as a cardiologist, I've been faced so often by the question of patients to say, come on, doc, just a little bit of alcohol for my heart's sake. Well, uh, when you consider that people who have hearts also have all kinds of other organs, and um, the evidence shows that there is no safe level regarding carcinogenesis where alcohol is concerned. And I'd like to draw our viewers' attention just very quickly to the conclusions of a landmark study that came out in August uh, 2018, where it shows studying multiple thousands of individuals who used alcohol and use alcohol, looking at various sub-studies and considering all the issues. Alcohol is widely used, it's acceptable, it's, but it's the world's third largest risk factor for disease burden places a burden on families, strong association with domestic violence. Of course, we know it can be addictive. Its use exacts high costs from society because of associated crime, violence, and accidents. Well, of course, we've mentioned the fact that, or the thought that um, alcohol, moderate alcohol use is reported to have a cardioprotective quality. But that's not applicable across the board of age, ethnic, and gender variations. So once we have knowledge about these things, we need to take note of it and also notice that those most vulnerable are the age between 19 and 45 years. So we need to look at how are we going to get these facts across to younger people. Moderate drinking is associated with so many negative effects, and it's a known carcinogen. So in this time, not only during COVID-19, but in the time to come, we've looked at so many issues and the plea has been made and the, the comments made that we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to look, we need to be transparent, we need to acknowledge. And I would say, as I've listened to Many of the comments which have been so helpful about self-restraint, about temperance, making good decisions, choosing to sleep longer hours, having less association with screen times, knowing about our addictive propensity. 
I would say that this is so much bigger than we are. It's not something that we can do on our own. Not we as health professionals, not as teachers, not as patients, not as a struggling community. But I take courage from the second book of Peter, where he writes, talking possibly to people just like us, struggling the way we are with practical propensities, which are so much bigger than we are. He says, add to your faith goodness. So knowledge is important, but knowledge is not enough. Add to your knowledge self-restraint, self-control. To that, perseverance. Don't give up. To your perseverance, godliness. And then he says to godliness, mutual affection, the importance of supportive relationships. And to mutual affection, love. And so my hope and prayer is that as we go through these tremendous times, these unusual times, these unprecedented times, that we remember we can call on God. Because without that, alone, we're in trouble. Thank you, Dr. Lamas. We have been very inspired by the previous presenters as they've talked to us about practical applications. And now I'm going to invite my very close friend, Dr. Angeline Brower. Dr. Brower is a nutritionist. She's an amazing researcher. She is the head of health work within the North American area. And Dr. Brower has some very special programs specifically for all of us as we face different addictions, but there are some special ones that Dr. Brower is gonna to talk to us now about. Thank you so much, Dr. Leela. It's really great to be here um, and talking about uh, topics that are really so very relevant. Um, and I wanna bring up an, a topic that's related to the idea of self-restraint. Dr. Landless read an, uh, the statement from the World Health Organization and it mentioned this issue as well. Um, and Dr. Nedley gave us a very good presentation on what we could think about as the extreme results of the lack of self-control, which is the area of addictions. So as we consider issues surrounding opening up the globe, I want to take a few minutes to discuss what could be considered a companion to addictions um, and substance abuse, uh, because I believe that safety in the home often coincides with safety outside the home as well. So this is the area of domestic abuse and violence, intimate partner violence. So a number of researchers have looked historically at the rates of domestic abuse and violence, uh, child abuse as well, during and after natural disasters. And what they have found is that there are higher rates of these following these disasters. Uh, that um, often stressors associated with issues of job loss, economic strains uh, can precipitate uh, more abuse, more uh, abusive behaviors, and um, also reduced access to resources. People are not able to access the resources that they would usually have 
to um, help them out of situations like this, being disconnected from social support systems, fewer options for finding safety, for finding help, shelters that are closed or have limited operations, and emergency rooms that are overwhelmed. Now, all of these sound like they're talking about the current COVID pandemic, aren't they? So if we put the issue of abuse um, and violence, domestic violence in perspective on, um, uh, on outside of a pandemic or a crisis situation, um, one in four women and one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. Now, abuse can also take the form of other kinds of nonviolent behaviors um, as well. Control really is what the issue is about. And also one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past one year. And we also see that racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected. And we know that they are also a high risk group for COVID-19. So if we look at the long-term effects of violence, not only are there physical injury, death, chronic health conditions, there are also mental health conditions. Uh, and so we're looking at physical and mental health effects for the individual. There's also a tendency for individuals who are survivors to participate in risky sexual behaviors and substance use behaviors which can then lead further down the line towards addictive behaviors as well. But there are also uh, larger impacts on the society related to issues of violence, uh, such as the lost productivity at work, increased costs of medical care, medical services. So society at large also suffers when individuals suffer in the home. Now, I want to pause here and let people know that there are ways to get help. I know we have a lot of people watching these web, these uh, symposiums, um, and it's important that they know that there are ways for them to get help through confidential and safe resources. So what do we, how do we connect this then to self-restraint and to temperance um, and the role of addictions? Well, what we see is that about 80% of domestic violence crimes are related to drug abuse. If we go to the next slide, and that's some of the data that we see is that it's a very large number um, of, of relationship between domestic violence and drug abuse. While the current lockdowns may have reduced access uh, to some of those addictive drugs, drugs of choice, maybe in some areas alcohol because of bars and other avenues that have closed. However, the lockdowns have not dealt with the underlying cause of those addictions. Stress, loneliness, depression, boredom, isolation, these are all increasing in fact. And so really our, in our current um, situation, we really are expecting to see an increase in addictive behaviors and also in the abusive behaviors. Well, so let's talk then about prevention because as Dr. Landless said, prevention is better than cure. And when it comes to substance abuse disorders, we really want to begin interventions during childhood um, so that we're not going down that pathway. 
this slide is a compilation of research studies that have looked at what are the different factors that influence young people to, uh, to not engage in risky behaviors. And so you see here that they're, when they are involved in service activities, so getting young people to serve um, other people, maybe at this time it's serving in the home, um, but also how, what are safe ways that they can serve other people um, while still maintaining our, our healthy uh, behaviors to prevent spread of COVID. But also when the young person believes that their parent loves them unconditionally, that they feel a lot of love and warmth in the, fam in, in the family, and that the family eats din dinner together at least five times a week. And this has been really interesting. Uh, just having that time together without phones, without televisions blaring, without those distractions, but just spending time together connecting talking, reviewing about the day. And this is still a useful practice during our lockdown time. Also, when the family spends time actually in worship and spiritual activities together at least once a week, when they attend church services uh, during the week, and many uh, religious organizations are offering online services now, but also when the young person has personal time in prayer and in reading the Bible, their religious material, that also leads them to, to avoiding those risky behaviors. So really what we're looking at is that we are reducing the adverse childhood experiences that often lead to addictive behaviors, to lack of self-restraint, and we're building resilience. We're helping these young people to build those healthy habits that can promote um, healthy restraint. And as uh, you mentioned, Dr. Leela, we do have an addiction recovery program through the office that I run um, because prevention, these, these uh, methods for prevention are also beneficial in the recovery process. And I've seen that over and over again in the folks that we've worked with and their stories that they share is that they tell us that those same behaviors did help them in that road to recovery. So what we aim to do in these programs is to utilize the lifestyle choices in a holistic way, um, including spiritual care, including social support. Um, so, I, and I would encourage anyone who is looking for help with an addictive behavior or is looking to prevent um, young people in their home from going down that road or, or whatever the case may be to, to consider what are the holistic approaches um, to, to reduction and to recovery. Um, all of the principles that we've talked about during these symposiums really are part of that process as well. So finally, when we talk about when is it safe to open, I really want to also ask the question, are we prepared? Are we prepared for those things that we may not see? Are we prepared for the increase in the abuse cases, the domestic violence cases that um, are unfortunately sure to come? Are we prepared for the increase in addictive behaviors as access to drugs of choice open up again um, more fully? Are we prepared for binge behaviors that may happen? And are we preparing 
by training and engaging our community-based resources and including our faith organizations because what we have found is that uh, the faith community really does play an integral role in that recovery process and in prevention. And so are we implementing those effective strategies now to prevent the escalation of these issues um, in, in the very near future? So really we're talking about building a culture of safety. Uh, we're talking about building a culture of safety for the individual, a culture of safety in the home, a culture of safety for relationships. And, and really that then will end up, will result in the culture of safety for our communities. So thank you, Leela. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Brower. And what you said about binge drinking, you know, I just wanted to bring that up. There was a study that just was recently uh, pointed out by the CDC, and they were commenting that one episode of binge drinking had a significant effect on the immune function. So um, I, I want to encourage our viewers, encourage each of us as presenters that there are different forms of addiction. We've talked about several of them, and we've talked about self-restraint. And with that, I want to invite again my good friend, Dr. Neil Nedley, to talk to us about the practical application specifically of the mind and self-restraint as we go about the process of reopening our globe. Thank you, Leela. At Weimar Institute, uh, we treat uh, scores of individuals um, who at the core have issues related to self-restraint. Uh, there's a need for the lifestyle intervention and in the treatment of their disease process. But I've noticed many that attempt to enroll here, uh, they think even though they're suffering that they really don't need to have the help that Weimar offers until it's actually often too late or almost too late. For, an, for instance, when a diabetic is now facing dialysis and has to have an AV shunt, we will get a call saying, can I come to Weimar and can I avoid this dialysis? At this point, over 85% of their kidneys have been destroyed. And yes, dialysis is terrible as far as what it does to your quality of life. But if only they would have come a little sooner uh, when they can't undergo a coronary, coronary artery bypass grafting because they don't have any saphenous veins that are left or their cardiac output is too low from their ischemic cardiomyopathy to even survive the procedure, then they're calling Weimar after their advanced disease is there and saying, please, can I come? I want to now finally try nutrition and lifestyle measures. And I've noticed as well that people that feel healthy and aren't really, at least in the felt sense, a danger to themselves or others, uh, really tend not to even seek uh, services such as Weimar or even try to learn about the new start lifestyle unless something very bad happens. And then uh, they can give us a call after there are several suicide attempts, after all sorts of issues, um, then we might get a call in regards to the need for the mental health services here. But now we have an additional reason to embrace New Start. It's not just to avoid these diseases or reverse depression and anxiety and heart disease and certain forms of cancer and diabetes and kidney disease. 
But now it's actually as a result of the threat of round two, every person who feels healthy today should really be as motivated as possible to follow the new start principles, to be a full functioning member of society and to be healthy enough to withstand COVID-19 when exposed requires that you incorporate all of the new start principles so that you can be confident uh, in going out to into society and integrating with society, even though you're taking all the precautions necessary, it's possible that you could get it. And young people that aren't following New Start are dying from this disease. So although the New Start lifestyle is, it sounds simple, it really is. It's not that difficult. The benefits are amazing and go way beyond avoiding health destroying complications of COVID-19. If we optimize our immunity through New Start, we're also going to be avoiding many, if not uh, the majority of chronic diseases uh, today. And so this should really be a wake up call to the world at large to embrace the principles of comprehensive self-control. It, although it isn't difficult, it does require comprehensive self-control to pull this off and to be healthy, to be fulfilled, to be full of life, and to be able to integrate with all segments of society in health and confidently so. But if you don't have comprehensive self-control, I would encourage you to do whatever is necessary to get it. That might mean coming to a place like Weimar. It might be embracing uh, the principles uh, that we talked about earlier of enhancing your frontal lobe and opening up your heart to God's love, that self-sacrificing love that brings self-control with it. And if you're not motivated to do those things, then come to a, a place that is designed to do that. Um, it may not be Weimar, it might be another place. Uh, we would uh, love to be able to, um, to help you in any way possible so that you can confidently live a life that is full and free of addictions and free of self-sabotaging behavior. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nudley. And as we look at that as a big picture, as, as the big relationship between the physical aspects of health and the mental and the self-control, the emotional aspects of health, but we've also seen, just as they knew back in 1918, that there's a direct link with the spiritual health. Clearly, science has shown us that that's the case as well. And I am very excited to invite Dr. Finley. Dr. Mark Finley is a world speaker. He is also a special assistant to the president of the World Church of Seventh-day Adventist. Dr. Finley, please share with us the overall arching theme of holistic health. Thank you. Thank you, Layla. A number of years ago, a young Navajo boy was brought into the emergency room of a hospital not far from the Navajo reservation. This boy was brought in with a severely fractured or broken arm. The orthopedic surgeon who eventually treated him set the arm and knew that the boy would get full use of it again and the boy would be well. A few weeks after that, 
the surgeon was in a store buying something and the chief of the tribe came up to the surgeon and said to him, I'm very, very disappointed in you. And the surgeon was amazed. He said, what do you mean? I, I set the boy's arm. He came in with a broken arm. And um, I talked to the boy. He told me that he got the broken arm by riding down a hill on his bike. He was riding so fast, he hit a hole, went flying over the handlebars and broke his arm. And the chief of the tribe said, I'm very disappointed in you. You healed the boy's arm, but you didn't heal his heart. And you'll probably see him again in the emergency room. Because you see, I went to visit that family and the father is an alcoholic. And the reason the boy broke his arm is because his father was beating him, domestic violence, alcohol, and the boy was so frightened, so tense, that he jumped on his bike to flee from his father, was riding fast, and broke his arm. You did not treat the whole person. What is health? Health is physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional wholeness. We've talked tonight about self-restraint. In the story, that father had no self-restraint at all. We've talked about rest. In the story, that Navajo boy had no rest at all. He was filled with anxiety, worry, tension. So how do we treat the whole person? We recognize that human beings are four-dimensional. They're not only physical. They're not only a collection of genes and chromosomes. They're not only a collection of organs and tissues and cells, but they're complete human beings. If a person has worry and anxiety, that's going to create a stress, break down the immune system. If a person has alcohol-related problems, that's going to affect the whole family. It's going to be a social issue. But how can we implement the principles we've started? We've talked about the principles of good diet and healthy nutrition, the principles of exercise, the principles of sleep, the principles of self-restraint. Most of us will recognize that often in our lives, we desire to do right and we don't do it. Most of us will recognize that often in our lives, we have certain aspirations and goals, but we don't achieve them. Why not? Because in ourselves, we are too weak to accomplish our highest ideals. In the scriptures, the Bible says this. It says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. In the Christian ethic, probing the spiritual taps us into a source of divine power that enables us to have a peace and a rest and a security. It enables us to overcome many of the habits in our life that are simply destroying our health. The spiritual enables us to have that self-restraint, that self-control, understanding that we're created by God, fashioned by God, shaped by God, understanding that the God that created us has a divine power that'll change our lives. Not long ago, I was counseling with one of the vice presidents in one of the larger countries in South America. It was a very difficult time in that country. The teachers were on strike. The Healthcare workers were demanding better wages. And this 
executive had been up for four nights in a row. He was absolutely exhausted, no rest. And as we talked, I shared with him a Bible text in Isaiah 26, verse 3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts thee. And I could see the stress begin to melt away. The anxiety begin to go because this diplomat sensed that there was a higher power, sensed that there was a God that could give him peace. As we pray tonight, would you like to say, Lord, to implement these things in my life, I need your power. I need your strength. God, help me have temperance, self-restraint, and grant to me that inner soul rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we are not a collection of genes and chromosomes merely. Thank you that we're not merely genetic accidents, that we're not some random molecules, but thank you we're created by a God that cares for us and who loves us and who has the power to change our lives. We open our hearts just now to receive that power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. You know, it's hard to believe it's been four weeks. We've had the wonderful opportunity, like we said at the beginning, of evaluating the 1918 pandemic and comparing it to our current COVID-19 crisis. We've clearly learned a lot of principles that now we can apply to our lives and by God's grace, improve our overall immune system. There's a few things I did want to address. Number one, again, for our physicians who are continuing to be interested in ongoing research, you are welcome to join the Facebook group. Again, go to the uh, site there that's listed. Number two, for those of you who shared the link last week and your gift will be coming in the mail, that's a Ministry of Healing book. Again, please allow one to two weeks for us to gather the addresses. If you do receive an email or a phone call, please go ahead and respond because that's how we're able to collect the information so that we can deliver your gift to you. Secondly, I want to discuss what's coming up next week. Although this is the end of the four-part series, it's not the end. By request and popular demand, we are having a fully question and answer session. There are so many questions that have come in and we've not been able to address them. We want to take the time to address as many of these questions as possible. These have been collected by a central source and we will have an entire symposium next week just on answering these questions. So if you still have remaining questions, please go ahead and get them in. Same time, same place next week. The last thing I want to address is a continuation of what we've been discussing here. Coming May 17, please put this on your calendar. AWR 360 Health is starting Level Up. Level Up is going to be a similar information, but a different format. And we are looking forward to our very first presentation. Our two main speakers, our main experts will be Dr. Steve Lee. Dr. Lee is an MD, PhD. He's actually the vice chair of the ear, nose, and throat department at Loma Linda University. He has a PhD in molecular biology, extensively researched. We are looking forward to an amazing presentation on specifically the relationship of self 
uh, restriction or isolation and what that's done to the COVID-19 situation. And then we'll also have Dr. Mark Finley, who you're very familiar with, and he'll be looking at this again from the holistic perspective and what, if any, historical evidence, even biblical evidence we have for isolation. We are looking forward to an amazing program starting again May 17 with additional panelists, many of whom you've already become very familiar. With that, I want to again thank each and every one of you for attending. For those of you who have attended, you are eligible for your up to 12 hours of Category 1 CME credit through the University of Arizona. Many of you have asked, how am I going to get my certificate? The final due date to fill out your application, if you have not done so, please go to awr.org forward slash health, fill out the information. You will now receive an evaluation form and all of those are due by May 15. So again, like we said, it's 12 hours of free category one CME credit. Some have asked, what about CEUs? The same applies. Again, go ahead and please write in at that website and we'll be able to help assist you. Again, thank you for attending. Please continue your holistic approach to health and I promise God will bless. Now, for those of you who would like to stay for a few minutes, we're going to have about 15 minutes of question and answer now. And then don't forget, next Sunday, again, we'll have an entire program just for question and answer. Okay, we're going to look forward to a few questions at this time. And I'll ask several of my panelists to go ahead and come back on. And that would be, um, we'll be looking forward to those questions on our screen. Thank you, Dr. Schwelt. Wonderful. We'll look for... Uh, there's Dr. Nedley and Dr. Landless, and see if we can grab Dr. Brower in here too. Dr. Landless. Okay, while we're waiting for Dr. Landless to come back on and Dr. Brower, I'm gonna go ahead and ask the first question. Um, this will be going to Dr. Nedley. Should I take NAC and vitamin C daily? Well, I don't know much about um, you, uh, and so normally that's an individualized approach, but vitamin C is a potent antioxidant, and it can be healthy. Um, just in general, the um, uh, Harvard uh, did an analysis recently, even in regards to COVID-19, and they recommend up to 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C daily. That's not a huge mega dose, uh, but it is something that is safe and effective and may be helpful and regarding this. N-acetylcysteine has been investigated in a lot of different infections, including the influenza infection. We don't have data on it with COVID-19, but a nice randomized control trial showing 1,200 milligrams of NAC a day. Uh, this is an antioxidant that you can uh, actually um, make um, in your body from cysteine. It's glutathione. But this uh, antioxidant actually showed that out of four people, there were every four people exposed to the flu, three of them did not develop any symptoms at all. And if they weren't taking NAC, it was far worse. In fact, the vast majority of them had symptoms. So they developed antibodies. In other words, they were fighting it off. But the glutathione really helped them in this oxidative stress endeavor. And it might have a role in regards to COVID-19. Thank you so much, Dr. Nudley. Uh, I'll have another question. Zinc 
or drink zero alcohol beer, 2% beer, fermented grapes. Isn't the real issue cheap alcohol and addictive prescription painkiller overdose? Dr. Landless, can you please help us with this question? Sure. You know, it's a little bit like uh, people will say, you know, well, I don't take salt. You know, salt is, I use sea salt. I use the special salt that comes from some exotic place. Salt is salt is salt. <laughs> alcohol is alcohol is alcohol. So the problem is alcohol. And uh, the question asked, I know is asked in all sincerity and uh, with all seriousness, but I also need to answer in all seriousness as well, that alcohol is unsafe. There is no known safe level. So leave it out. Dr. Landless, I have a quick follow-up question to that. Uh, some have asked the question previously, well, I thought alcohol had uh, protective effects on my heart. How would you answer that? Well, interestingly, uh, the um, French paradox started in 1979 and has led to all of this discussion surrounding the uh, protectiveness related to the coronary arteries. And there have been some studies which have shown a certain protection to the coronary arteries. However, when one looks at all the confounding variables, when you look at socioeconomic issues, education issues, uh, all of those, and also temperate lifestyle, in other words, moderate lifestyle, which includes exercise, appropriate eating, and you take all those confounding variables, uh, Fillmore and Co. did in 2006 an amazing study, analyzing the studies which were showing the benefits to alcohol and showed that once you remove the confounding issues, including with patients who had previously been drinkers, who were included as non-drinkers, you level the playing field, you find that there is no positive influence of alcohol on cardiac disease. And here's the other issue. The Lancet Journal issue that I mentioned from August 2018 shows that overall, cardiovascular events, including stroke, and now more recently, the association with not only acute atrial fibrillation, but long-term fibrillation is a significant issue related to alcohol. Alcohol is not a heart-safe substance. Thank you, Dr. Lamless. We have another question. This is for Dr. Brower. What about non-domestic violence, mental abuse, or aggressiveness? Yes, absolutely. Those certainly are types um, and forms of abuse and, and non-aggressive, non-physical violence. There are actually many different forms that abuse can take. Uh, there's, um, you know, using isolation. Uh, that's an interesting point given the need to be in isolation right now because of COVID. But um, actually enforcing um, the inability for you to connect to other people, to connect with family members even, that can be a form of abuse as well. Uh, using economic abuse, withholding fi finances, um, and given financial situations right now, we can see how, how potentially that could escalate as well. Emotional abuse as well, even religious abuse is considered a type of domestic violence. Really what it's coming down to is an issue of power and control, that the individual wants to have power and control over you, over every aspect of your life, even how you may dress or 
or uh, do simple things as how you do your hair. Um, so, so it can really take a lot of different um, variations. When it comes to childhood abuse, we also want to consider childhood neglect, which is an, another form that can lead down the road to addictions as well. And this is um, potentially a risk given the increased stress that parents are feeling right now. They are at home, potentially with multiple children, potentially without many resources. Uh, so there could be an increased risk of stress, which could potentially lead to neglecting the child, not caring for them, either emotionally, uh, physically, or otherwise. So there are very many different forms that abuse can take. Thank you, Dr. Brower. We have another question from Samuel. This is to Dr. Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt, is listening to quiet music while in bed bad for sleep? No, no, it's not. Um, it's uh, it's can actually sometimes be soothing. So it just depends on if it's the right music or not. Uh, there's um, been a number of studies that have looked at music and what it can do to the to the mind. You know, when you're going into sleep, you go into something called alpha wave sleep. Alpha sleep is a, is a sleep that's uh, associated with the transition into sleep. At that point, your, your mind, your executive function, your higher functioning are basically shut off and you're opening up your self subconscious to uh, things. So it's best be uh, music that you'd want to have your subconscious listening to. Um, I, I'm not a, a big fan of, of um, hypnotism or anything like that. So, uh, music that um, is soothing, I think, is, is a good idea. I, I did see a question on there, Layla, if I could just answer it real quick about um, people who work in the night shift. What do they do? I would really encourage them to, if they're going to work at night, is to sleep during the day, number one, but also to continue that even on days when they're not working at night. So that would include weekends. Essentially, go home whenever it is at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning. Make sure that their blinds are are closed, that no light is coming in, and getting that what we call anchoring sleep, so that uh, even though they're not, they're sort of a nocturnal uh, creature, they're going to get the benefit uh, that everybody else will of melatonin and things of that nature. Excellent, thank you so much, Dr. Schwell. What are some of the remedies to assist people who struggle to sleep? Also, the best approach for someone who doesn't trust in God and is sick. I am going to ask the first part of the question to um, Dr. Schwelt, and the second part I'm going to ask Dr. Nedley to answer. So what are some of the remedies to assist people who struggle going to sleep, Dr. Schwelt? So melatonin is a great medication uh, to use if um, exogenously, obviously your body makes its own. The one problem in the United States, particularly with melatonin, is that it is a not considered a drug. It's considered a, a, a nutrient or a, a supplement, and it's not very well regulated. I remember listening to Dr. Nedley uh, last week um, about uh, some natural sources of melatonin. And uh, those are things that you can be pretty assured of, of getting because, um, you know, God puts that into the fruit. So um, that, that certainly melatonin is one of those things that is, uh, is beneficial, especially if you're taking it right before going to bed, uh, that would help you fall asleep. And uh, for, for the most part, stay asleep, but it's, it's a fairly short acting medication and it would help mostly for people with difficulty falling asleep. Uh, in terms of other 
uh, things. There's a number of other uh, medications that have been used, uh, Kava Kava. These are probably not as, uh, as recommended because they do have side effects. One of the misnomers is that because it's natural, it has no side effects, and that's a misnomer. Uh, many things are natural, and many of those things are, are side effects. So even drinking too much water can cause problems. So I, I would be careful of those things. Thank you so much. Dr. Nedley, how do you approach someone who doesn't have trust in God and is currently, let's say, having COVID or some other illness? Well, of course, we have a lot of individuals that come to New Start who don't trust God and come to Weimar with that um, mindset. And often it's due to things that have happened uh, earlier in their life um, that maybe God got blamed for inappropriately or uh, maybe some significant uh, misunderstandings. Um, usually when they come to Weimar and they see the loving, non-judgmental staff, uh, they are actually um, seeing the hands and eyes of God through people. And it's a lot easier for them to believe and start to trust uh, again. Uh, and so uh, we have to get to the core issues of what's causing that lack of trust and, uh, and try to deal with that issue. I'll just tell you one story of someone who was just discharged at last week from our depression and anxiety recovery program. She was an atheist, didn't want to have anything to do with God, had been to AA and had told AA that if they would throw out the God thing and the higher power, they'd have more success. And she was going on her own and she was going to do this on her own. Well, obviously, it didn't work out. That was three years ago. And one of her clients told her about Weimar. And uh, she fortunately you know, read and knew that we would uh, have that element, that final T and new start. But this time she was open for it, although somewhat skeptical. But in the 10 days, she developed a strong, trusting relationship uh, with the Lord and was actually wanting to make that full commitment to him. And you can see just the joy come back into her life. And instead of needing to spend, as she mentioned, she would have had to spend $45,000 in a three-month program. She had a bad alcohol problem. Um, she realizes with a much less cost and with the help of the spiritual component um, that she has been set free. Yes, she'll still need follow-up appointments and things, but that can be a lot more successful than a prolonged residential program without that trust in God component. Thank you so much. I, I just want to say a very special thank you to each and every one of our panelists. We have so many questions and we just want to get to each and every one. And that is why I want to refer you again to next Sunday. Next Sunday, we are looking at your questions and answers. We will be taking our panelists and they are going to be analyzing your questions and answering them for you. Again, I encourage you, make sure you tune in, share the link with your friends and family. And until then, God bless you. Stay well, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay whole.